and welcome. You are listening to an episode of the Sales Chat Show. To stream or download a host of further free episodes that will power your sales success, please visit saleschatshow.com. We really hope that you enjoy and benefit from this episode. So, hello folks and welcome to another episode from the Sales Chat Show, saleschatshow.com, driving your sales forward. This episode we are recording in December 2022 and this is about things coming over the horizon in 2023. This episode is entitled The Five Critical Sales Risks That Will Cause Sales Failure in 2023 If You Can't Overcome Them. In the Sales Chat Show studio, Mr. Phil Jessen, Mr. Graham Jones, I'm Simon Hazeldean, and we have been having a pre-conversation before recording this episode comparing notes on some of the themes, some of the things we've seen occurring or things that other other thinkers on the subject of sales have been talking about coming coming into the end of 2022, moving into 2023. So we've got five kind of areas, themes that could be potential risks if they're not dealt with, but could also obviously be the other's flip side of risk is opportunity for those that rise to them. And the first one is rationalization or is it sometimes being described now that 2023 will introduce the great rationalization mr jones you've been having a look at this one i have and, <laughs> and so your thinking is far th- away the great rationalization is about the fact that we have just come through or really still in um economic mayhem Uh, which some people are predicting is going to be worse than the financial crash of 2008-2009. And so um, the combination of COVID um, and the war in Ukraine um, leading to changes in energy prices, changes in the way the world does business, are having such a big impact on companies that they are all predicting that things are not going to be as good in the year or two ahead as they might otherwise have been. And so uh, they want to rationalise. They want to make sure that they are squeezing every penny out of their spend as they possibly can and that they're going to get the best return on their investment. And that if things are not going to quite work for them, then in these economically straightened times, they are going to get rid of them. They're going to rationalise their way into only doing the essential things that are going to work for their business. So the great rational... I can't even say it. The great <laughs> rationalisation is upon us. So what to do about it, I guess, is what we're going to go through. We're going to introduce each theme and then we're going to talk about what to, what to do about it. Well, if, if customers are putting more scrutiny on getting value, in fact, this, this should be something sellers should have been doing anyway. Yep. It just means the bar is going to be raised. So I think sellers are going to have to be able to do very, very good return on investment arguments. They're going to have to try to de-risk purchases with with customers. This, this, what was referred to in one of the blogs we looked at was FOMU, fear of messing up. So every, every purchase involves a risk. The larger and more complex the purchase, potentially we could argue the greater the risk. 
So I think we, you know, we're just going to have to do a better job of what a good seller will be doing anyway. Would be showing the value they bring to a customer, and you know, if you if you measure value in the same way the customer measures value, you'll be in a good place. Value is what the customer says it is in their world, not what we think it is. So I think we just go back to some of the some of the comments in our earlier episodes that we've also we've also been recording today you know about being a real expert in your customers world from from comments from phil that's what we need to be able to do so well, we can just show that point about it is what they say it is i think you're absolutely right if you think about saying to one person within the decision making process how are you going to measure us how will you know that you're getting a good return on investment um, one person might say as I stop people in the corridor, if they tell me you're doing a good job, that's fine. And somebody else within the decision-making process might say, I'm looking for a, a return on investment of five to one. Mm. Two totally different criteria from two different people. So it's important about actually understanding what that is for individuals. And potentially having some sort of consensus map or consensus yeah. plan for all of those key stakeholders and looking for what might be the commonalities yeah. to drive you know, getting consensus amongst the buying group is, is yeah. often a challenge. Yeah. And so, you know, that's definitely something I think to... It's, it's, a, it, it's an obvious point in some ways, but then I'm reminded of questions that I've asked in the past of clients. How do people measure you? And very often my client doesn't actually know that. Mm. As simple a question as it is. You just haven't really bothered to think about measuring in that level of detail the return on investment and how that's going to be worded or framed. I mean, maybe it's 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 a subset of the great rationalisation. If 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 we're going with that terminology, or or it's a factor, is that often levels of authority will come down when economic times are harder. Maybe people are allowed to sign yeah. off half a million. Now it's gone. Half a million is now yeah. CFO or CEO or even. Half a million's gone down to a hundred thousand. Anything above a hundred thousand has to go to for more sign-offs. So you, you've you've therefore got to be thinking, okay, who now is going to be the people signing it off? Might be different people, but yeah. you know they may make an earlier appearance in the buying process. If it's CFO or head of procurement or even other members of the C-suite, do you know who they are? Are you influencing them? Are you contacting them? Yeah. All that good stuff. Yeah, I, th I think in terms of you talking about the fact that you know different people in the organisation might have a different view as to what the return on their investment is, I think you, as salespeople you, we need to create a, a Venn diagram, as it were, of all the different players in the market and where that bit in the middle is where everybody converges uh, when there's overlap between all, each of their different views then that's the bit that we really must concentrate on in order not to be rationalised out of their supply. But it comes back to the fact that they may not be measuring things. So one of the rationalisations we all need to do is measure more. And one of the things I always think about is Einstein's statement that uh, there are a lot the things that we measure, it's not his words, but he said this effectively, that often the things that we measure are not important and the important things often can't be measured. So we, we end up in business having lots of measurements that gives us lots of data, but actually that doesn't help us when we're thinking about rationalising because the data doesn't really tell us what we need to, to know. 
So I think as salespeople, we need different kinds of data. It is that emotional stuff that, you know, for the five different key people that we've got to deal with, what is it that makes them really want to carry on doing business with us, even in difficult times? Yeah. And we might also need to rethink, you know, how we how we build customers, how we position things to customers. You know, the concept of buying things as a service, you know, a monthly fee. Subscription-based. Sub yeah. Subscription-based. You know, software as a service now, yeah. you know, cloud, cloud sort of uh, data hosting, etc. as a service. Probably, incre you know, we're all doing it in our private lives. Netflix, you know, entertainment as a service, monthly fee. So, which maybe allows the customer to fund it out of an operational budget rather than capex. It's opex rather than capex. Yeah. Things so, you know, so we might need to be flexible and think about the way we 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 go to to market maybe yeah. or how we how we charge customers for our products and services that you, would be risky yeah. you, you may remember when we um interviewed john lowe mm, uh, yes. in this room some time ago um i just remembered that one of the things that he did with his uh yorkshire based company making uh products that were sold to the nhs security products to sensors basically to track people if they got out of bed in the middle of the night all that stuff but um, very cleverly very sensibly um, he piloted the launch of a new product in Scotland and they measured with the client the return on investment and the conclusion that they came to was that the return on investment was seven to one but it would take six months to deliver it now that's not a difficult sale because if you think about it, a salesperson, in a sense, is basically saying to the customer, well, give me a thousand pounds, I'll write you a cheque now for seven thousand pounds, but I need to post-date it six months' time. That was the level of authority that they had around the product launch when it went into other parts of the UK, all signed off by the client end in Scotland, so the peer group feedback was in place for the other parts of yeah. the UK, and not surprisingly, it was a very successful. So I think on rationalisation, we're saying double down on ROI, refocus on ROI, um, re refocus on what value means and de-risking, also for the customer, and making sure you've got the right coverage over the right people who maybe if spend thresholds, and just keep asking change. how you're measuring us. Yeah, wherever yeah. you go, how are you going to measure this? And focus on measurement, particularly as Graham was saying, the Einstein. Let's make sure we're measuring the measuring the right yeah. things that matter to the customer. So the second second theme is differentiation. Um, I was doing a a workshop um, for a group of bid managers uh, for an organisation and. Um, one of the bid managers was very insistent that in their industry that they they all did the same thing and therefore it wasn't possible to differentiate from one from the other and that was that was his starting point we all do the same thing for the customers and the customers can choose any of us and they would they would they would get the same thing um, now i am not disagreeing with the fact that it can be challenging to differentiate yourself but I certainly would be challenging starting off with that mindset <laughs> that there is absolutely no way to differentiate so we might as well not bother and I was thinking actually as a bid manager that's a slightly worrying because one of your jobs is to differentiate your customer <laughs> for, your, for, your, for, for, for your competition but what are your thoughts I mean it, it's becoming increasingly harder because 
you know, anything you've got as an innovation will probably be copied, can be copied reasonably quickly. So therefore, how do you differentiate yourself in 2023? I think that, um, first of all, you've got to know who your customers are and what they are going to see from you. So we're sitting in a hotel at the moment recording this, and this hotel is one of 32 brands in that same hotel group. And so the the group that owns this hotel have got 32 other brands. Now a hotel is a hotel. It's a room, you, you know, you've got rooms, you've got meeting rooms, but every hotel in the world is pretty much the same. There's not a lot of difference. You're just providing a bed for the night. Okay, you may have different quality bedding, you may have different quality restaurants and so on, but actually, a hotel is a hotel is a hotel. So anybody can compete with you. You can't really differentiate yourself. What are you selling? You're selling a room for the night. That's it. Um, so you're not doing anything different. So you could, like your bid manager, say, well, we're just the same as every other hotel. Whereas this company that owns this hotel differentiate themselves by saying, actually, what do the customers want? So we've got different kinds of customers. Therefore, we need different brands to go to those different kinds of customers. And so you can book into this hotel as one kind of customer and not realize that the hotel up the road, which is seen as a much more luxury hotel than the one we're in, is actually the same company, just differentiating its offer to its customers. So I think the crucial thing for differentiation going forward is actually really understanding what your customers actually want. And then if you're not quite providing what they want, then differentiating yourself to what they want is much more important. I mean, if, if momentarily we accept this argument that what they're delivering can't be differentiated, and I would challenge that because we don't—you don't have to have clear blue water. You just everything can be differentiated you know, in you, one way or another. You yeah. win the hundred meters a fraction of a second ahead of the other person, right? So it does—you know—you win the deal. You don't have to be incredibly different always, right? A massive USP or something. But you can, therefore, look at how you do it, which is the other way, because a hotel is a hotel is a hotel. It's just how they do it. But how they do it, the check-in procedure, the, you know, how the staff are, how how easy it is, for example, to to get what you want, or I think how you show up for the customer, you know, showing that your customer... If you can explain to the customer better than anybody else how your service meets their needs, they will see a differentiation. Yeah. Even if, if we just accept for the moment the service is identical, which I really struggle. <laughs> see, I really struggle with that because it's how you execute as well, right? In the hotel that we're in at the moment, we arrive in the car park, we walk into the building and we find our way to the meeting room that we're in. Uh, this hotel group has another brand where before you arrive, your personal uh, valet will be in touch with you to determine what is it you want to do in the local area when you get there and produce an entire package for you for just for your overnight stay of everything you want. They meet you in the car park, they take you to your room, everything is done exactly as you want. The mood music, whatever you need, is all done. In okay, they charge a lot more for that service. But actually, it's still you just walking into the hotel and going to your room. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's just delivered differently. And I think to Phil, on, on on the previous episode, you were talking about, you know, your your sort of uh, review meeting with your customers. You know, where are we meeting, exceeding, or not failing to meet your expectations? 
find out where your customers think you are exceeding their expectations and mm. if five of them say the same thing hallelujah you might have a point of differentiation but one of my favorite so, questions is to say to a board of directors if you ceased to exist today what would your customers miss about you tomorrow and in the answer to that they are normally mentioning the differentiated item yeah it's a good way to just sort of focus on that part of the package of things that they are offering. I mean, when I talk to procurement people, because we sometimes bring in a sort of like a tame procurement person to help out with negotiation workshops, so they get to pick pick Jenny's brains about life in procurement. And she always makes the point, you would be amazed how difficult it is sometimes to find a supplier who can deliver what you want, who can do what you want, who can work in the way that you want. And I'm not talking about doing it for a cheap price, it just means capable of doing it. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's as bad as, as that particular person, that no. bid manager was, was, was making out, mm. you know. So, you know, in your own life sometimes, how hard can it be to find yeah, you know, to, to interact with an organisation, find find out what you want to, you know, be very easy to do business with, be as flexible as it is reasonable for you to be with with customers. You know, great customer service will start to differentiate you versus, you know, versus yeah. versus the competition. We were in a restaurant in London at the weekend, and one of our friends, one of our friends has celiac, so can't eat, can't eat flour. And uh, the hotel had been, uh, sorry, the restaurant had been advised in advance. They said absolutely no problem, and they wonderfully differentiated themselves by making the whole dining experience as difficult as possible for my friend. <laughs> so basically, he said, "Oh, are you, are you the person? You the person who can't eat flour?" Like I could think of a slightly better. Yeah. Oh, here's here's our gluten-free advice, and it was three laminated pages of a grid which didn't correspond to the menu <laughs> showing what could be eaten and what could not be. So they differentiated themselves by making it incredibly difficult and our friend spent half the evening apologising for disrupting disrupting us. So uh, two star trip advisor review on the way including photographs of said laminated <laughs> cards and they only got two stars because the food was excellent right. despite, despite, despite the fact. So therefore, well, then, you can differ, you know, in a crowded marketplace of restaurants, you could differentiate by making that an well, easy. I went to a restaurant uh, for a set dinner with uh, a group of people, and uh, one of the people I was with was gluten-free, um, and uh, we're sitting down for dinner, and there's menu cards telling us what the meal is, lovely food, you know, the menu was great. And uh, the meal started to be served, and my friend sitting next to me said, excuse me, I'm gluten-free. And the waiter said, that's fine, sir. Everything is gluten-free. So I went, hang on, I want gluten. <laughs> so, but so the fact is they found a way out of it. You can do perfectly good food without gluten. So it's just easier to give everybody gluten-free food. It just makes it easier for the chef. But it means that now that person knows they can go there and eat anything and not have to worry, not have to say I'm gluten free or dairy intolerant or whatever it is, because they do everything that satisfies both those mm. um, problems, the two main problems that people go to restaurants with, just by doing it for everyone. So that's a real differentiator and they're not having to do anything difficult. 
to quote a certain sales expert that we know. If you're an expert in your customer's business, you never have to sell again. Uh, yeah, I can't think who said that. Who Mr. said that? He's long that? gone. Just, long gone. He's retired, is he? Yeah. <laughs> but if. If you really understand what's important to the customer and you can deliver against that, I, I genuinely believe that will solve a good chunk of the differentiation challenge. Yeah. Despite, and then you can look at the other things that you might have to do about products and service delivery and things like that. There will be an important part. Of I think product. another good test of this is that if the customer is talking about our stuff in their boardroom, the chances are you are differentiated in yeah. some way. Yeah. If you are not a topic of conversation in the boardroom, you are probably in amongst the pack yeah. as a supplier, not a partner. So I think that, I mean, on the differentiation, I think you just got to come from the mindset of customer focus, customer first, customer mindset, what's important to them and deliver against that. Yeah. There's differentiation yeah. by what you do, there's differentiation about how yeah. you do it as, as evidence. Now the third one is personalization, Mr. Jones. Yeah. This we've touched on this on previous episodes. Yes, this indeed. is this is coming out more and more. It's isn't going to be it? even more important going forward. And the the reason for that is that the more stuff we do online these days, the more personalized it becomes. So your Google search is personalized entirely to you. The three of us could sit here on three different computers, search for identical phrases, and get three completely different sets of results. So uh, search is personalized to us, and we know that. We know that it's getting us what we want, not what everybody wants. Uh, your experience on online stores, your experience in social media, everything is personalized. So what that means is that we expect everything else to be personalised. Our day-to-day -day consumption of the internet is an entirely personal experience. And so when a company comes along and doesn't personalise it, um, then unfortunately it doesn't match the psychology of where we're coming from. And so increasingly, certainly the business-to-business -business world, everybody in the business-to-business -business world is also a consumer. So they're individually, they're consumers, individually the people you're speaking to have experience of everything being personalised. So it's no good personalising it to the company, you've got to personalise it to the individual in the company that you're selling to. That's so, the level of personalisation that's now expected. I mean yeah. I think um, there's a mega trend which is if you want to know where B2B is going, look at B2C. Absolutely. Because it's starting to influence yeah. people's... And, and that that is things like with your decision-making process. Who are the decision-makers? What jobs do they do? Therefore, what are they likely to have targets or KPIs on? So therefore, yeah. as you explain and articulate the value of your solution, you're explaining it in a way that's different to each person. Yes, yeah, that's, a that's a challenge in a group situation, but you, 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 there's, yeah. ways, there's ways to kind of manage across that by pressing the most important buttons as best you can. But yeah, Phil, yeah. you... No, no, I'm, I'm simply echoing what you're saying because you're quite right. But, uh, rather, uh, it's the complete opposite, isn't it, of what would happen years ago in that good old features, advantages, benefits yeah. thing, because now the benefits have to be tailored because how the HR director, the finance director, the operations director and the chief executive see it, the benefits will be completely different. Well, I, see, I mean, even back in the day, like what you might call like, you know, 
1990s sales training that I did. The Abacus era. The Abacus era, era. yes. The old, I can remember the sales trainer at the time saying, ultimately, it's only a benefit if the customer agrees it is. Yeah. Which which still to this day is is absolutely, our widget does this, I don't care. Yeah. Our widget does this, oh, that's brilliant. And you've got to understand the individual. It's a bit like spam. Okay, so I, email, I ask yeah. people what spam email is, and they come up and try and give me a definition. And I say, spam email is whatever the recipient says it is. Yeah. And your, your definition of what you perceive as spam email is entirely different to mine, but it's still spam to you. So it doesn't matter that we come up with definitions or spam filters or whatever. Spam is spam if you think it is. That's it. Yeah. And I think it will also see the end. Well, it won't see the end of it, but it will see the end of the effectiveness of it, although that was only ever limited of those canned LinkedIn messages that, you know, the awful on email messages, you know. Welcome to LinkedIn. I see you've joined LinkedIn. I'd like Would to. you like to connect with me? Yeah. No. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> you know, what's, your, what's, your, what's your success rate when you ask someone to connect with you? Oh, it's quite low. Do you personalise it? No. Well... Go figure. Right? <laughs> you know, that, the canned stuff is, is well past its... Yeah. I can remember um, a couple of passengers being interviewed when they were on Concorde, the good old supersonic plane. And the interviewer said to the first passenger, well, why are you on this plane? And uh, the passenger said, well, basically to get to New York and back in half the time. OK. Uh, interviewed the next passenger why are you on this plane and uh, she said to be airsick for less time <laughs> uh, completely different yes. benefits of having exactly the same ticket the same type of seat the same type of service but why they were there and the personalization of it was obvious I mean, there's Moonpig, right? Moonpig.com, the card company. You can do all sort of personalisation. Yeah. It's wonderful. I've used it. I've used it many times. But if you're a, if you're a B2B buyer, and you can create a, a lovely personalised bespoke card for your partner's birthday, but your supplier seems incapable of making a presentation that doesn't look exactly the same as everybody else's, yeah. you know, come yeah. on. The corporate like, presentation deck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that just, should be abolished. That should not be allowed. <laughs> And we've mentioned this previously. I saw Neil Rackham, a gentleman who uh, very famous for spin selling, amongst yes. amongst other things, speaking at the Sales Performance Association in the UK, and um, putting forward the notion that from a sort of a left to right scale, over the far left will be uh, transactional purchasing, commoditized. In the middle was sort of a bit of added value, and over the far right was sort of. I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth now, but personalization, full customization. And he said the middle's going to disappear. It'll either be a transactional purchase, which we've seen happening online, yeah. or they're going to want that full customized, personalized kind of thing. So if you're doing a little bit, it probably is. I can think enough. of a sales team that I worked with years ago 40 people in the sales team, basically all doing the same sort of thing. Now, Six people in the office doing the commoditized telephone and email-based stuff, transactional, and there are six key account managers doing the important face-to-face yeah. customer stuff. The middle ground is gone. Yeah. It's a bit like the football 
we're in the midst of the World Cup at the moment, and uh, Google have introduced a page about each game, and what they've done is a live mathematical probability of a team winning. So that what happens is you can watch the probability change as the game changes. So they're using, obviously, mathematical models to work out what's going on. Um, and uh, sadly, England lost to France uh, recently. Very sadly. Yeah. And uh, at the beginning of the game, so this is the probability based on what they had done previously, the probability of England winning the game was 33%. The probability of France winning the game was 34%. And the remaining probability was extra time. So you could see that the beginning probability, where we stood at the beginning, was actually pretty equal. Yeah, so if you're pretty equal, the probability of having extra time is very, very high. So as the game progressed, you could see the probability being changed. And they do this lovely little graph showing you the probability changing. And uh, we get to a point where eventually it's all up one end. So that it's 10% uh, England, 90% France about to win, and then it went to 99.7% France going to win, 0.3% England going to win. So the, the option in the middle had been completely destroyed. And I thought, as I was watching that, I thought that's a fantastic model for what's happened over time with sales, that you've had transactional sales at one end, you've had you know the, the personalised sales at the other, but the bulk of sales in the middle have been kind of that middle ground. And actually, over the same period of time, we've seen this shift. So that all it's all at one end now. It's mm. all personalised sales. Because even those transactional sales online are coming out of that personalised environment. Well, because they're able to automate a lot quite. of the algorithms, etc. Yeah. and what it is. So it, it appears yeah. quite, you know, mm. here's top picks for you. Yeah. Kind of those, so it looks sort of... Yeah. Does has Google uh, any sort of forecast or prediction when the, the ball that Harry Kane kick so far above the goal line he's going to stop orbiting the earth and I, then return back I, I, I believe that they've been able to combine that with NASA's uh, Santa um, sleigh tracking app so we might we, so we, we might, might see it following his Santa sleigh come back to earth at, at yeah. some stage at some stage in the future now the, the next theme actually actually probably touches on all the ones we've talked about which is the number of contact points, the number of people. So it, it does appear, any research I've seen, Gartner, McKinsey, etc., is saying there seems to be an ongoing increase in the number of people involved in a decision. Um, so we're thinking about rationalisation. We talked about that. There might be new people. Thinking about differentiation. You're going to have to differentiate to those and uh, personalise yeah. to those to those different people. So I think. My my experience to date is that probably far too many salespeople do not have a very clear view of the decision map for an organisation, of the stages they're going through, the criteria used to make the decision at each stage, the timing, and then the very important thing, who is involved, decision makers, decision influences, etc. And are typically seeing not enough people. Now I know sometimes it can be quite difficult to get to certain people but if you don't know they're there in the first place that makes it really, 
that makes it really, really difficult. So I think that's definitely going to be an ongoing trend in B2B. But yeah, but the number of people you're seeing and those contact points is related to this FOMU, this fear of messing mm. up. So rather than one or two people being the decision makers, they don't want to mess up. So they involve a committee of decision makers now so that nobody actually ends up taking the blame if a wrong decision is made and they've bought the wrong supplier for, for their needs, that actually it's collective blame rather than individual blame. And I think a lot of that stems back to uh, the financial crash of 2008 so that a lot of the time then people were making individual decisions and we've seen the huge impact of that. So people are scared now of making decisions. So they will get a committee of people. That means as salespeople we are now selling not to one or two people, we are selling to a team, a committee, a procurement department, whatever it is. And so there's lots more contact points that we're going to have that's multiplied by the fact that each of them is going to have multiple contact points with us because every one of them is going to look at us on LinkedIn, they're going to look at our Instagram, they're going to look at all the other contact points that we have. So actually it's gone from selling to one or two people to actually having to be in multiple places at multiple times to multiple people, all in the space of a few years. And just on that point about um, finding out who the key people are, sometimes on training programs that I've run, I've, I've run an exercise that is being built around what questions would you ask on a first visit and in what order would you ask them. And to cut a long story short, in my view, the question built around identifying the decision-making process comes way too late, and on some occasions, of course, never. I think it needs to come early on and after those safe early questions, including what exactly does your company do or whatever, but the safe stuff, maybe question three or four, does need to be who apart from yourself would also mm -hmm. be involved. Yeah. And if the customer turns around and says, Sheila, the next question is, and is Sheila available now? And who knows, the yeah. prospect might tap on a door and invite Sheila in there and then but we don't have that opportunity unless that question comes early. Well, the research I've seen sort of varies, it depends on size of company, but anywhere between six and up to 20 people, mm -hmm. you know, depends on the complexity and the risk. It's a real committee. Yeah, yeah. you know, and some, sometimes it's an awful lot. And so we've, we've really got to make sure we're covering those, those people, who they are, and then have a look at them. What's your support status? and what's the relationship status. And those are two different things for me. Relationship status, I, I go and see Graham Jones. Graham's a nice guy, we have a coffee. Graham's very warm, friendly. I think my relationship is good. Do not confuse that with support status that Graham is going to say, I think we should go with Simon rather than his competition. Those are two, those are two very, very different things. There's a very good example of that in a new TV programme called Traitors and Traitors is a, a game um, and there are 20-something players in the game uh, but three of them are secretly um, allocated the role of Traitors and their job is to win £120,000 and uh, they are trying not to be found out and the other people called the Faithful are trying to find out who the Traitors are um, and then they vote off people each night and they sit around this round table uh, to vote off um, who they think is a traitor. 
and for the first uh, five episodes uh, that this has been running, they've failed to identify a single traitor. And yet, sitting watching it, you can see that what's happening, you've got a committee of 20 people making a decision, and you can see that there is somebody who is very friendly uh, in the, you know, the other time. They're getting on really well with the person who they are now going to say is a traitor. Nobody else in the room seems to think they're a traitor. There's this big discussion. But this individual is very influential in other people's thinking. So what happens is that the meeting starts off with, you know, ten different names of traitors, and eventually that one person, who earlier on was very friendly with this person, has said they're a traitor and has influenced most of the people around the table to say they're a traitor and they end up voting off somebody who's a faithful. And I think that that's a real model of exactly what happens in business. That in the past you may have one or two people who would just make the decision. Now uh, you've got a committee. It may well be that the person who's very friendly to you outside the committee is going to be the traitor, as it were, in there, who is influential in arguing that actually you're not quite the right business for them. So you've got to know not only what do each of these individual people on the committee want to know about from you and what's important to them, you've also got to know who wields the greatest influence. And it's often not the person with the checkbook or it's not the person who's the ultimate you know, chairman of the committee. They can be swayed by somebody in that room. So you've got to meet them all and work out who is the person who's going to sway it in your favour or yeah. against you. Yeah. So I think that, and why am I not surprised, Phil, that our resident psychologist would love the psychology of the latest British reality show? It's a Dutch reality show. Is it du oh, it's Dutch, is it? Okay, we've It's a Dutch invention. Dutch, yeah. Dutch, Dutch, yeah. Dutch event. My apologies to the Dutch television <laughs> network for arrogantly assuming it was a British uh, BBC idea. So I think takeaway from that is get your decision grid. What are the stages in the customer's decision-making process? What are the criteria they use for making each of those decisions? Ask it early. Ask it early. When will they be making those decisions? Who is involved? And then to Graham's point, are they a decision maker or and how high is their influence or are they a decision influencer so they can't say yes but they can say no how high is their influence etc yeah. and then and then make sure you've got sufficient coverage as early as possible Phil I could move to the left in the buying process is what I yeah. is what I refer to and the last one is I think is data usage of data um, we are swimming in data now most organizations I think drowning in data. drowning drowning in data um, but I think from a from a sales effectiveness point of view this is probably around really focusing down on our data hygiene in our um, you know in our CRM systems really find focusing down and then using the data to provide some insights for example how many opportunities do we have at what stage of our pipeline and therefore what needs to happen to move those to the next stage so data leads you to insight insight leads you to taking an appropriate action so i think data driven decision making using data on customers using analytics to understand our customers behavior in more detail um, using data managing the whole sales process you know going to be critically important and also customers i think increasingly going to be wanting yeah. good data provision surprise this is kind of your turf mr I jones but there's two things about data one is we've got more data than we can actually do anything with um, and a lot of people end up then you know as i said drowning in the data and trying to analyze things because the data's there we must analyze it which is nonsense 
So the first thing to do is decide what data do you need as a salesperson and how are you going to get it that will help you, you know, what data about your customers or potential customers do you need and just focus on that. But also think about what data do they need about you uh, and make sure you're providing them with easy access to the data that they are going to need to make the decision. And all the other bits of data are irrelevant. And also data they need to manage the ongoing relationship. Yeah. So, you know, self-serving now is a big thing. Yeah. You know, suppliers will be expected to provide customers data in real time. Yeah. So they, you know, like we like we get, you know, simplistically as a consumer, you know when your parcel is going to turn yeah. up. Now that gives you a certain sense of certainty. Well, maybe your customers are going to want maybe a slightly more sophisticated version of that, so they can track where their products are in your. So if you order an online chain. pizza. Uh, it will tell you when your pizza's gone in the oven, it will tell you mm. when your pizza's come out of the oven. It's not quite true, but it's near enough true. Um, and uh, if you are buying a product from a manufacturer, it would be nice to know where it is on the product manufacturing line. It would be nice to have access to a camera to see that it's... So all those kind of bits of data that are available to us as the manufacturers, actually, increasingly, customers are going to want that kind of data. They're going to know, you know, if I bring up a taxi firm and they say, yeah, I'll be with you in five minutes, they're just around the corner. Yeah, every taxi firm has been saying for years they're just around the corner when they never are because they then put the phone down and go, blimey, I've forgotten to send the cab there. Yeah, whereas with Uber, you know not that they're just around the corner, but exactly where they are because the app tells you that the cab, the, the Uber that you've just got is literally you know, wherever it is, and telling you how many minutes it's going to be based on the current traffic. So we get, consumers are getting all this data. Every B2B buyer, as I said earlier, is a consumer. Yep. They're going to want exactly the same kind of data from their business-to-business -business suppliers. So if you want to know where B2B is going, look yep. at B2C, because that is influencing what they want. And if you're not able to be the over-equivalent, they're going to be going, why not? Yeah, you're going to have why to be. Not? So I think that's a kind of a, you know, going to be a key trend yeah. for customers, key, key trend. So that was kind of rationalization, differentiation, personalization, mapping of contact points and managing data both from an internal but also data demand from an, from an external perspective. Any closing comments, Mr. Jessen? Only with my military hat on. Which looks splendid it and you've shined your cap badge you haven't seen my shiny boots very well uh, no with my military hat on uh, my version of what we've just been talking about is don't look at the information look at the intelligence mm, yes. i.e what the information means it's your word isn't it insights yeah, yeah it's absolutely. insights yeah, absolutely. it's intelligence it's not information excellent mr jones no i've got no other thoughts about what we might do in 2023 other than to think that whilst you and I will be busy slaving away over the sales chat show, faders and microphones, one of our members will be putting their feet up. Polishing their cap badge yeah. and leaving the burden of bringing words of sales wisdom to our, our dear listeners. Ooh. Did somebody mention traitors earlier? <laughs> Leaving. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely, if Mrs. Jessen will allow, we shall definitely have to 
do the great escape and bring Mr. Jessen back for I a think for we might invite him as a guest. Well, well, I should be back for the shareholders meeting. I'll have him. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, folks, we hope you have a supremely successful 2023 with all of your sales efforts. Hope that's given you some some thoughts, some ideas to to make 2023 your best sales year ever. There are 250 or so episodes in the Sales Chat Show back catalogue, so tons of practical ideas in those episodes to help you with the challenges you'll obviously be facing in this demanding but wonderful profession of sales. And from everybody at the Sales Chat Show, Phil Graham and myself, we'd just like to wish you good luck and good selling, folks. You have been listening to an episode of the Sales Chat Show. To stream or download a host of further free episodes that will power your sales success, please visit saleschatshow.com. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. And from everyone here at the Sales Chat Show, we'd like to wish you good luck and good selling. <laughs>